is the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Queers. We're talking Fully Ripe, we're talking Jade Gates, and we're talking Sex Octopi. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace, and we're talking Ringing Vagina Balls. I mean, just four of them. But they make an impression considering the film ends with their sound. <laughs> this is true, and yet you're. I feel like you're starting with the good stuff up front because that is such a question and conversation to be had. Like, have you stuck the ringing balls into your body before? As is a usual phrase with us, we'll get there. But oh my, <laughs> um, I don't know how educational this movie was on female sexuality, so we'll have to turn to our guest for that when <laughs> once she comes in. But um, yeah, this is a we're we're talking Park Chan Wook's The Handmaiden, y'all. Yeah, I'm excited. Oh, no, I'm super excited. This is my second time seeing this movie, and it is definitely a film that I liked a lot on my first viewing, but I loved on my second viewing. Like, it definitely rewards uh, repeat viewing. Yeah, there's a shit ton going on. So, folks, if you haven't seen this before, A, absolutely do not listen to this, because this is a film that can be spoiled, and of course, as per usual, we will be spoiling it. But also, if you haven't seen it in a while, don't rely on just the plot description part of this episode, because this is a film that merits a rewatch so that you can really dig into it. But before we dig into it, uh, I do want to introduce our guest, because, Joe, it's kind of fun. This is our very first returning guest. Ladies and gentlemen and everyone in between, you may remember her from our episode on Fatal Frame last year, or not, because it was one of our least downloaded episodes, even though it's available on YouTube. Thank you all for that. But <laughs> please welcome Jenny Nolf. Hi. I didn't realize I was the first repeat. You are. So consider oh yourself God. special. I love you that much. <laughs> and also, we need an expert. <laughs> I know. I was about to say, I was like, do you love me that much? Or did you need someone that's seen The Handmaiden like four times? Y- your, your request for French Extremity has been heard. And understood, and we will get you on a French extremity film one day. But since we already did Martyrs this year, we didn't want to subject listeners to another one so soon. Oh, I mean, that's fair. <laughs> we have to space them out a little bit. Um, how are you doing, Jenny? I mean, we live so close to each other, but I haven't seen you in so long because <laughs> of everything happening in the world. I know. We need a karaoke session when it's like okay to do it. <laughs> I think there's a way to do virtual karaoke, but I don't... It's not going to be the same. No, no, no. I mean, for those who are partaking in it, yay. But aren't we all looking forward to in-person karaoke sessions? Yes. Jenny's in a league. Like, she does karaoke leagues. Yeah, I I really miss it. I used to do it, like, every week. Minimum once a day. Or once, yeah, once. You know what I mean. Yes. Well, nevertheless, thank you so much for coming on to this episode. Um, so yes, um, we are talking The Handmaiden, which was released in the States on October 21st, 2016 by CJ Entertainment. We're looking at a runtime of 145 minutes, unless, like one of us here, you watch the extended edition. Which is a full 20 minutes longer. I cannot believe that. <laughs> it was good. I mean, it, it still feels well-paced. It just kind of 
breeze a little bit longer, but admittedly, I should not have started watching this at 11 o'clock last night. Oh, oh my. I knew what I was doing, and yet by the time I got to the end, I was mad at myself. What, wait, what time did you go to bed last night? <laughs> like one thirty. Okay, sorry. I was. I don't know if, like me, it took you four hours to watch this movie because I kept pausing it to take notes because I didn't want to miss any of the subtitles. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. <laughs> it is right. I mean, so I had forgotten. I mean, and listeners, if y'all if y'all have watched it, which again, we hope you have. There's a language thing with this where you know they they tell you up front that you know oh the the subtitles are color coded which is not mm-hmm. something i had seen before do you, have y'all nope. have y'all seen that in a film before where that that like it's been told that way i've seen a few and i can't name them off the top of my head but sometimes they change the font and i've seen one where it had three or four different languages and it wow. was it yeah they, they changed the colors they changed like if it was like bold <sighs> or it like had like a background like a highlighted color did they provide, like, a key with the DVD or something so you could, like, look at it as it was happening? It's a physical card. You just have to put it next to you. Uh, no, I don't think so. I think it probably had was some film I had to watch for the film festival that used, right. like, Thai, Chinese, uh, both Mandarin and Cantonese, and then... Of what film festival do you speak, Jenny? Uh, I'm the director of programming for the Austin Asian American Film Festival. Yes, you are. <laughs> Which is one of the reasons why you're so familiar with Park Chan-wook. He is also one of my favorite directors. <laughs> well, yeah. I, so, uh, I was going through Park's filmography today, and I was like, okay, I've seen the whole Vengeance trilogy. You know, Lady Vengeance, Mr. Vengeance, oh boy. I've seen Stoker, which yes. I forgot that he didn't write. But I, I, he's done other stuff, too. But I've actually, the the one glaring blind spot where I'm like, oh, I feel like I should have seen this, but I haven't, is Thirst. Oh, it's so good. Jenny and I literally just talked about this a couple months ago for part of my horror bucket list. We did. Oh. So okay. Joe is making me watch, rewatch a lot of Park Chan-wook movies. This is I mean, you could do a lot worse, right? Oh, so worse. Because <laughs> his films are legitimately fantastic. Love him. I'm telling you, like, watching this movie, I was like, I'm stunned at how beautiful it is, both in terms of, like, the landscapes. Like, every every outdoor scene in this movie is, I was like, I want to go to Korea now. It's insane. And then, of course, the house born. Oh my god, the house porn. That mansion is so cool. I want to live in that library. That particular library? (laughs) Yes, I like, I love an erotica library. I mean, me too. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It's got a little octopus in the bottom, come on. I mean, it's it's almost like a pseudo-rape, right? Like, like, because being forced to do that shit, Oh, yeah. I mean, this is a story about abuse and conning people and maybe just a little bit of falling in love, but a lot of abuse. It still has a lot of humor in it, which is something I had forgotten. Yes, particularly in this first part. Um, yeah, well, well I think there's more, but sure, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that as they come <laughs> along. Um, so yeah, we're looking at a budget of $8.8 million. I don't have an opening weekend gross for the States, but I know it made $2 million in uh, North American territories. Uh, with an international gross of $35.7 million. So uh, it, it's actually the highest grossing of Park's films in the States. So that definitely speaks to its... um. Well, I don't know if it speaks to the film or us Americans like opening up to foreign films. Uh, I think the latter. Although it'd be interesting to know how this film would fare after like the Oscar win of Parasite. Like, 
I saw a lot of lists in the wake of Parasite's win where people said, oh, so now you're thirsty for Korean genre films. You should be checking out. And of course, it's like half of Park Chan-wooks. Which it's really, I, I don't know much about the Asian film in, uh, like film industry. And so like going through, like, like when I was looking at the actors and like their filmographies, I was like, oh, wow, there's like a bunch of films that I don't even know exist because they just don't make their way over here. I mean, it's mm-hmm. really like their own Hollywood. Actually, is there a name for it? Like, like we have Hollywood, they have something. Uh, no, it's not like Bollywood where there's an actual specific name for it, but they do have studio films. Is this considered a studio film? Oh, yeah. Park Chan-wook, he's... He gets all the funding he wants. It's kind of crazy, too, because as you, I was looking at your numbers, and this movie cost way more than it made back in South Korea. Really? So it wasn't uh, yeah. a success. But it's because it's him. It doesn't matter. Well, the worldwide gross was good. I mean, granted, you know, I mean, it's it, it's $37 million worldwide on the $8 million budget. But when you factor in, you know, marketing into all the territories that it played in, yeah, may, maybe it d- didn't make its money back i mean i don't know oh just in south korea i meant like globally it did make its money back i think but like when i was looking at your numbers that you sent along trace i was like oh that surprises me that the handmaiden didn't do that well Hmm. i wonder if it has something to do with this here queer content it's possibly that but i also think it's just because the sheer amount of numbers of people that live in south korea you can't really have a blockbuster the size of like an american one and even if it's made for $8.8 million, I think that's still a really high number to yeah. make overall. Yeah. I can double check that, but I'm pretty sure that's that's a high number to reach and get your budget back. But I also think they know Park Chan-wook is a global filmmaker, mm-hmm. so he gets a little bit more money to make these movies. Right. It's going to be like, well, if we're going to give a movie this much money, it might as well go to Park Chan-wook. Right. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, people did love this movie. We're looking at a 95% on Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 8.31 out of 10. I think this may this be might the be the most... best reviewed film we've I... ever done. <laughs> I was going to say that too. <laughs> and we're, it's like 200 reviews too. So it's not like one of those 80s movies where there's like six reviews. Um, and then on Letterboxd, we've got an average score of 8.6 out of 10. So that's real good. I don't really have many notes on the production, but given the historical setting of the film, because it is set in 1930s Korea, I thought it might be important to discuss just the context of what was happening in the country at the time. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So, yeah, I'm, I'm going to make this as easy and painless as possible, because I'm going to tell you right now, I did a deep dive into some Korean history pre-1930 today, <laughs> and I felt like I was in school again. It's good for you. It's fine. I felt like I was in school when I got your email. <laughs> it was only three pages of notes. It was fine. Jenny's like, oh, yeah, no, I'm not going to read this. Thank you, but no. <laughs> I know. I put I put in there, I was like, if y'all want to read that, I mean, actually, no, I said, please look this over before the recording. And I, as soon as I hit send, I was like, they're not going to do this. But I did. Uh, please do your homework before the podcast. Teacher Trace demands it. <laughs> So, okay, this film is set in 1930s Korea, which is basically, um, it, it, South Koreans consider that period the, uh, it's, the, it's Japanese forced occupation. That's the period that we're living in, which was taking place between 1910 and 1945. So I thought, you know, like, I, a lot of this film is dependent on, oh, like, like how the Japanese and the Koreans feel about each other, but they don't. There is context where it's like, there's, it seems like a tense relationship, but it doesn't really like, it doesn't, it doesn't give you a title card that says, 
1875, this happened. In 1910, this happened. And so if you don't, if you're not familiar with the country's history, I just think, you know, eh, it's kind of fun to have the context. So basically, before 1875, Korea was a protectorate of China, uh, which basically meant that it was a territory dependent on China, but China had granted Korea local autonomy. Then basically, Japan kind of came in and forced a treaty signing, which is the Japan-Korea Treaty of 1876. The, the purpose of the treaty was to open up Korea to Japanese trade, but it removed their status as a protectorate of China, opened up a bunch of uh, ports forcefully, and it granted extraterritorial rights to Japanese citizens. Um, so basically, it, it was what they called an unequal treaty. Like, it wasn't fair. It was all benefiting Japan and not benefiting anyone else. So part of this meant that uh, the Japanese, because they were very keen on being seen as, like, modern and industrial, uh, so they made a bunch of transitional changes to the country to try to, like basically show hey look at how amazing we are even though we're here in korea doing this stuff so mm -hmm. it it the problem is is that all of their changes didn't benefit koreans per se it was really just aesthetic things and it created a certain amount of animosity among korean citizens because they were like well thanks for all this shit we're not getting any benefit from it and it's particularly important because there were a subclass of koreans who would voluntarily subjugate themselves to the colonial power so we are talking about colonialism because of course this is a country that's being occupied by a foreign territory but there were a bunch of koreans who actually sort of drank the kool-aid and decided that they wanted to emulate or even become like japan and that factors very uh, significantly into the plot of the film the cultural assimilation is something that yeah absolutely plays into the film so yeah basically after this treaty was signed like there, there was a couple of instances of mutiny there was something called the emo incident in 1882 where a bunch of koreans um like rebelled did they also listen to my chemical romance oh <laughs> <laughs> Um, yes, it, yes, it is, it is the emo, but it's an I, not an E. But, but basically, like, the treaty for that one, like, it basically, like, gave all the benefits to the Japanese, and none of the benefits to the, to the mutinying Koreans. This is all pre-1900, so there's a lot of history going into when we'll get into the annexation of Korea by Japan, uh, which is coming up in 1910. But in 1905, Korea was obliged to become a Japanese protectorate, so they jumped from China to Japan, China's not too happy about that. So, like, the three countries are kind of in this, like, love triangle or hate triangle, maybe. I'm not really sure. Then we get to the Japan-Korea Annexation Treaty of 1910. Basically, this is what kind of kicks off the events of this movie, or at least the, 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 the new status quo for Korea that, that The Handmaiden looks at. The, the terms of this annexation treaty were basically that the emperor of Korea concedes completely and definitively his entire sovereignty over the whole Korean territory to the emperor of Japan. So this starts it all. As years go by from 1910 to 1930, like Japan keeps gaining lands. Like it went from like Japanese ownership of 7% of the land to over 50% of the land in the 30s. The landowners were Japanese while the tenants were Korean. But... I guess there's a thing in Japan where it's like tenants have to pay over half their crop as rent. So they impose that on Korea, which caused many Koreans to start sending their wives and daughters into factories and prostitution just so they could pay their taxes. So I guess there was a thing when this happened where Koreans would start taking Japanese names, which does play a part in the beginning of the film when Suki, like, she goes under the name, is it Tamako? And then they're like, oh, but your Japanese name is Okju or something. It's the other way around. 
there you go. Um, but so, so basically, the Koreans taking Japanese names was barred, and Koreans who had already registered under Japanese names were retroactively reverted back to their Korean names. This stayed in place until 1939, so after this movie takes place. But the real thing I wanted to get into was just how the culture of Korea changed because of the annexation. There was newspaper censorship. They could not publish any local papers. The Japanese authorities were trying to assimilate Koreans through education, so there was a lot more, obviously, like Japanese education happening in Korean schools. Um, the Japanese rule of Korea resulted in the theft of tens of thousands of cultural artifacts to Japan, which I know that Asian cultures are really steeped in the culture itself and their history, so I imagine that was probably seen as a personal affront to a lot of Koreans. Then Japan sent an anthropologist to Korea who took photos of the traditional state of Korean villages to serve as evidence that Korea was quote-unquote backwards and needed to be modernized. Then we have language. In 1921, government efforts were strengthened to promote Korean media and literature throughout Korea and, in, and also in Japan. But the Japanese government created incentives to educate ethnic Japanese children in the Korean language, but then also vice versa, where it was trying to basically... I don't know if it was, like, really abolish the Korean language, but, like, basically get more and more Koreans to speak Japanese. So by 1943, actually, all Korean language force uh, language courses had been phased out. Teaching and speaking of Korean was prohibited. And then, yeah, basically in all this stuff, like, from 1919 to 1929, there's a bunch of independence movements. Standard rebellions, standard people, like, revolting against the oppressor, blah, 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 blah. But the Japanese violently suppressed all these protests. We're talking summary execution, rape, forced labor, looting. Um, there was an instance where, oh, have y'all ever seen The Patriot? Uh, I think a long time ago. Okay. There's a scene where Heath Ledger's wife and her whole family and, like, the whole town get, like, pushed into a church. And they, the, the Redcoats board up the church and burn it down with everyone inside. This happened in some of, in, in these rebellions. The Japanese did this to some Korean villagers. And basically, yeah, as we enter the film, basically a lot of hostility from Korean civilians towards the Japanese government. So when this movie opens on a Korean village, that's what we're looking at. And I'm done. Thank you for the history lesson. <laughs> One other thing that we should address before we get into the plot is that this film is also an adaptation of a British novel called Fingersmith. So it is uh, a novel that came out in 2002 by Sarah Waters. It is a neo-Victorian historical fiction that consciously replicates some of the details of Victorian sensation novels, which basically just means that it's <laughs> intense melodrama and intrigue. But it's also very important to know that this book is one of three novels that Sarah Waters published, and they are intensely lesbian by nature. So like the intention is to focus on the lesbian relationships. And that's obviously a really big deal because this film is all about a secret lesbian relationship. Like, the film doesn't work if you don't believe that these women have fallen in love. Do you know if the book... I mean, I know it's British, but is it also... Is it a period piece? Yes. My mom's read it, and I actually had it for decades on my bookshelf because my mom gave it to me. Mm -hmm. And I, I never read it. Sorry, <laughs> but I do know a lot about it because my mom told me a lot about it, and she called it uh, a bodice ripper. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so it is a period piece, but it's set in the UK in the Victorian era. So they've transplanted the story, and in part because this was actually made into a BBC two-part series. So they wanted to distance the film adaptation so that there wouldn't be any confusion. So that's why it's moved to Korea and also forward in the past more. 
So they changed the time period slightly, so they moved it ahead, and then obviously the big change is that they moved the location over to Korea, which I think works. Like a lot of people made reference to the fact that by moving it over, you have not just class, but then colonial intrigue, as well as the queer themes, which is something that like the book has a little bit of class, but not quite as much, and it has no colonial issues at all. Well, it's also one of those things, too, like, with regards to lesbianism. Because if you say lesbianism in the 1930s, it's like, oh, that's, like, super taboo. And one thing I do appreciate about this film is that, and we can get into the sex scene when it happens, because I'm sure everyone has thoughts about that. But it never, it, it never really, like, homophobia never really comes up, you know? But I guess it's because no one ever really finds out about their relationship. Mm-hmm. It's very much a taboo thing, to the extent that no one talks about it. I mean... I think that's what makes this this movie a little bit better than others, because I feel like you could have a history lesson and go the same route where it has to be totally secret and we have to disapprove. But I like how there's not a single person that disapproves. So it makes it feel natural and it doesn't make you think, oh, this might not be natural. I mean, it, it reminds me of, um, and Jenny, I don't know if you've actually watched Shit's Creek, but it reminds me of the way that Dan Levy approached Shit's Creek, where it was like, oh, it's a world where there are gay people and they exist and there's problems, but like, it's a world without homophobia. Like, mm-hmm. yes, obviously that's, that's a part of what we, like, of the world. It always will be. But to create a world where it doesn't exist, or at least it doesn't come up, it's, it's a refreshing thing to see of like, what life could look like. And so watching this reminded me of that, even though, yes, they're keeping it a secret, but I didn't even just feel like it was, oh, we're keeping the lesbianism a secret. They're just keeping the relationship a secret because of all the other factors, whether they were gay yeah. or straight. Yeah, it's it, actually Portrait of a Lady on Fire reminds me a lot of that, too, in that approach. It's Where true. it never, like, yeah. talks about it being taboo or, like, have homophobic, like, people surrounding them. Right. And it's refreshing. I mean, granted, I do think those stories need, still need to get told so we, so obviously people can see, like, how us queer people are treated sometimes. But... It's also nice to have these happy movies with happy endings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a... <laughs> it takes a route to get to the happy ending. It does. And a bunch of people have to get maybe murdered or hurt. But... I mean, there's some fingers getting lobbed off. There's some whipping happening. I'll confess, I mean, if you've seen his other films, this is kind of tame compared to what you might get in some of the other Vengeance films. Yeah, I, I agree. Well, do... We have anything else before Joe gets us off on this either two and a half hour or two hour and 45 minutes <laughs> plot summary? Yes, we will be taking up the rest of your day with this plot summary. <laughs> it's okay. It'll be fun. Oh, God. Okay, well, let's dig into part one, because this is a three-act narrative structure. But you know what? It makes it easier to go down, though. Each part is shorter than the last. It's uh, it's nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So, part one, we begin with Suki, played by Kim Tae-ri, a poor Korean girl who embarks on a long journey to become the handmaiden to a Japanese lady, Miss Hideko, played by Kim Min-hee. So, Suki arrives at the secluded palatial home, which is a hybrid style of both British and Japanese, which is a bit of a nod to the book, but then also to, as we mentioned, the colonial implications of the film. And she meets the housekeeper, Madame Sasaki, played by Kim Hae-suk, and she's taken on a tour. And this house is opulent, it's rich, it's filled with just outrageous things. Opulence! All the time. (laughs) And she's kind of overwhelmed by the whole thing, right? 
I'm overwhelmed the whole time. I mean, the, the set design is incredible. This movie does drop you in the middle. Like, I think the first 30 minutes, like, at least when I first saw this, I was very much like, okay, wait, wait, wait. What's happening? What's going on? Like, because mm-hmm. I, 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 we, we haven't really discussed the narrative, but the narrative of this film is very twisty. And it doesn't spoon feed you at first. It will, it fills you in. But like, even the first scene when the Count, quote unquote, comes to like, get Suki to like, say what they're going to do. It's just like, he's, he's mentioning all these names and people. And it's like, what is going on right now? (laughs) Yeah, you're constantly playing catch up, particularly in this first part. Right. So Suki is, sorry, I'm going to try to not say it like it's Suki from True Blood. I I kept writing, well, because I I kept writing Suk in my notes because I was tired of doing the hyphen. But yeah, my subtitles would say Suki, like no hyphen, no H, just S Suk E-E. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, because there is there is that H when you read it in other places. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Suki is woken in the middle of the night by Hideko screaming, and she is confused for Junko, who is the former handmaiden that we have not met and will not meet until part two. <laughs> <laughs> and in the morning, she discovers that her shoe has been stolen, and this is happening right before she's meant to be introduced properly to Mistress Hideko, which is kind of shameful. Like, it's embarrassing for her. That she's missing a shoe? Yes. Okay. But she gives her a shoe, which is super sweet. Yes, because the lady of the house is nice. So she gives her a pair of shoes, but she does come off as a little bit somber and reserved and maybe naive. So the the relationship at this point is she seems nice, but also like, okay, she's a bit of a wallflower. We also kind of get our first bit of physical comedy when she when she wakes up to uh, Hideko screaming at night. Like, that's when they first meet. But like she, she gets this little cubby hole in like of a bed with like a door that shuts. And as when she hears it, she like stands up and like bumps her head a couple times, falls out of the bed. Like it's Suki gets a lot of physical comedy in this film that is yeah. quite entertaining. But it's yeah. also like sometimes it. That's one thing that Park Chan-wook does really well is balance the tones because there are a lot of tones going around in this film. Yeah. So as uh. Hideko goes for a walk. Suki immediately just begins snooping around. So it's giving us some good insight into who she is. So yeah, she's got her physical comedy bits. And she's also clearly a little interested in what this lady's deal is. So we've already seen that she's got six drawers of gloves. And she's got an entire closet full of hats. So again, balance. I wrote, bitch has six drawers full of gloves in my notes. <laughs> Well, it's it's such a fantastic sequence, just watching her pull open a drawer. Mm Mm-mm. Pull open a drawer. Mm -mm. (laughs) Mm-mm. You're just like, how many more drawers are there? I mean, you have to be ready for the next pandemic. Apparently so. I mean, (laughs) Hidega would have been fucking ready. She's got doubles and triples and sextuplets of everything. You know what? If... I feel like she should have known which gloves were in which drawer. I feel like she was just doing, like, start at the bottom, work your way up, just so she could show Suki, look how many things I have. Oh, for sure. I mean, as we will discover in part two, she was getting tips on how to dangle things in front of this girl. Spoilers! Spoilers! Go watch the fucking movie if you haven't. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Hideko's gone for a walk, Suki is uh, sneaking around and looking at things, but then she eventually realizes she's meant to go and pick her up. So she goes to the library, which is its own independent building in the middle of the grounds, and she interrupts Hideko and her uncle, Kazuki, who is played by Cho Jin Wong, and he is both 
Hideko's uncle, but also the man that she will eventually marry. So the reason she has been brought over from Japan is so that he could marry her for her money when she comes of age. Um, okay, maybe I'm, I'm getting too far ahead because I think, I think this is revealed in the third one, but Sasaki used to be his wife? Mm-hmm. Okay. She's his former wife who he abandoned to marry a Japanese woman, and that woman then died. Yes, but then Sasaki stuck around to be his head maid? Yes. I'm not going to lie, I remember her being more in this movie a la Rebecca, and I was disappointed that she doesn't get more to do. Ooh, that's a good comparison, actually, for Mrs. It, it's not Mrs. Danvers, is it? It is. Okay, cool. I always get um Mrs. Danvers from Rebecca and whoever the old bitch is in Great Expectations. I always get them confused. I haven't read Great Expectations in a million years. I hate it. It's a terrible book, but moving on. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Charles Dickens. <laughs> but how do we feel about the Gwyneth adaptation? Okay, moving on. Okay, so, uh, so yeah, it's very much a faux pas that Suki has just kind of busted in, but we get our first glimpse of this library. It's very open air. There's just racks and racks of books and also a fake snake on the floor for some reason, you know, to warn people out. I love the way this room is revealed, though. It's like when she, she opens the door and the camera's like on a track and it just like zooms forward to see mm-hmm. Hideko and the uncle just on the on, like reading together. Yeah, I love that. It's fantastic. I mean, the, the camera work is, of course, fantastic in this movie. Mm-hmm. So it's no big surprise. <laughs> yeah, Park Chan Wook knows exactly what, like how to stage a scene and how he wants it presented this is what i thought was interesting too the cinematographer is um chung chung hoon who worked with uh park on oh boy lady vengeance there's all those movies but then has since gone on to work on american films he was a cinematographer for me and earl and the dying girl oh that's a great movie in terms of cinematography he was the cinematographer for it and not chapter two unfortunately oh right i remember people making a big stink out of that um the current war and here's the outlier Zombieland double tap what? Mm. <laughs> oh, there was almost a spit take there. He is also the cinematographer for Edgar Wright's next movie. Yes, yes. Um, last night in Soho, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, and That's that immediately has me excited. Like it's like two two genre like like experts right there. Yeah, <sighs> titans coming together. <laughs> Cool. Okay, well, let's take a bath. So the women have a moment of intimacy when Suki tenderly files down one of Hideko's sharp teeth. And this is... Yeah, we have to talk about this scene. (laughs) Yeah, because it's interesting that this film is an adaptation of a lesbian bodice ripper written by a woman, but then it's adapted by a man... And we've got then a lot of like POV shots of women's breasts and lips and corsets and that kind of stuff. So it's interesting. They they did a lot of interviews with Sarah Waters, the author of Fingersmith, when this came out. And she mm-hmm. actually said that she was quite happy with the way the adaptation comes together. And she feels like it isn't a, a gross sexist adaptation that, you know, is leaning into the exploitation elements. Yeah, I do want to add that. It, it was co-written by a woman, yeah. the screenplay. Mm-hmm. And they apparently, they had a, a queer female friend who they referred to a lot. I don't know if it was when they were writing it or if it was when they were filming it, but specifically to, to, to discuss the lesbian, like the, the queer scenes in the film. <laughs> so basically they had a lesbian sexologist. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh, what do they call it? Like, um, 
Oh my oh, god. Oh right. Yeah, this is a new thing, so they probably wouldn't have had it when they made this, but it's they have like people like sex consultants to make sure Cons- that... Yes, consultant. <laughs> yeah, they probably didn't have that, but it, it does seem like they did their due diligence to make sure that this like this movie is sexy. This movie wants to fuck you, but it's not disgusting. Like this could have been gross. It's not like when you see the scene in blue, it's the warmest color, and you know a man directed it. And I have seen some complaints online where they're like, a lot, some people have critiqued it, thinking that it, it, or saying that it does kind of toe that line a little bit too far. I think when we get to the scissoring, that's when, I think that's where that complaint comes from a lot. Yeah. But it's interesting, Trace, like, because, okay, not not to jump too far ahead, but honestly, when I saw, like, the way that sex is presented in this movie, it is, it's very upfront, it's very frank, but it also reminded me about other foreign films that we've seen, like, this reminded me a little bit of Good Manners, like, the way that the sex is shot. Yes, I can see that. But I mean, well, and the difference with that one, at least in terms from a behind the scenes perspective, is that that was written, uh, sorry, that was directed by a man and a woman as opposed to just directed by the man. Yeah. Um, Now, granted, if you didn't know that, like, would you be able to tell like, oh, this one was clearly directed by just a man and this one was clearly directed by a man and a woman or there was a woman who knew what they were doing? No. But, you know, if you know it, take into account. I like the, I mean, I can understand the complaints because there is a certain amount of lingering in some of these shots, but I never found it disturbing. Or intrusive. Yeah, mm-hmm. like it It honestly seems like it's these women confronting something within themselves that they hadn't considered before and they can't take their eyes away from it. Like they're, they're sticking with it longer than they maybe should because it's something new and fresh and exciting. I th- think to i mean with this scene specifically i think lingering is a good word to use because the massaging of the sharp tooth with the thimble it Mm -hmm. goes on and on and on (laughs) well because we're also seeing things from both of their perspectives or at least we think we are so we're seeing point of view shots from both of them like suki is looking at hideko's breasts and then hideko is looking at Suki's quivering lip and stuff so yeah does it hold longer than it should I mean it's up for debate right it's art but I I don't I mean Jenny maybe again for a female perspective I think like I mean I I don't think it goes on longer than it should but I mean you know what is the right time to hold on to these things because I think like you said they're putting us in the in the minds in the eyes of these women and when you're lusting after someone, you are doing long, secretive gazes for as long as you can at their physical attributes. So I, well, I mean, I guess you could argue that it's a bit, I don't want to use the word lecherous, but you know, a bit. Yeah. We um, know ugly, you know, mm-hmm. but like, the, it's because that's what these women are doing. Yeah. It's a slight indulgence. Yeah. Um, and I agree, <laughs> but it is what these women are doing. And an interesting thing, as I was looking forward to this scene, because when I saw the film for the first time, we had a pre-Q&A, and a lot of men were, I was like the only woman in the audience for this pre-Q&A, it was at Fantastic Fest, and or one of the few women, I can't say I'm the only one, but I was the only one who raised their hand for the Q&A, and I mm-hmm. was very lucky to actually 
in an embarrassing way, he was like, I'd like to answer the woman's question. <laughs> so Mark Trainbook specifically sought me out and wanted to hear my question. And my question was, what scene from the book were you most excited to adapt? And he specifically said it was this bathtub scene because of how seductive and quality it is. So I think there is a reason why he lingers. It was because he felt that kind of seduction when he was reading the scene in the book. Well, and if you think about what it's based on too, right? Like the whole premise of this is that it is a little bit lurid, but it's mostly sexy and like you're meant to get turned on by this. And I think the reason that people fixate on it is because it's a man directing two women and that still makes people feel a little bit uncomfortable. But also if we look at even just the history of films that we've covered on this podcast, pretty much every single lesbian film that we've ever covered, I, I could be misremembering, but the vast majority of them are directed by men. I think you're right, because I was recently doing a list of uh, horror movies directed by women, and I noticed that, like, I looked up Ginger Snaps and I was, like, kind of shocked, but also, like, not really, that it was a man who directed mm -hmm. it, mm -hmm. and I, John like, Fossil. forgot that, and... Yeah, a lot of these until recently were directed by men. Well, because um, Lady on Fire is a woman, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, ha I haven't seen it, but it's on Hulu, oh, so I'll watch it. so good. In, in terms of how hot it is, like I actually prefer this scene to the sex scene we get later. And I, uh, I'll debate if I want to cut this out or not. But so, like, I, I, I tell people, like, when, when I watch porn, like, I, I prefer porn with a story or a lead-in because i actually prefer the seduction aspect of it more so mm -hmm. than i do the actual like payoffs and money shots because there's something about the seduction that turns me on more so than the actual act of sex itself so i got what this scene th that's what this scene felt like to me it was like that that build up before the actual sex happens you know yeah i think that's a good way of putting it i mm. actually think it's a great way of putting it <laughs> <laughs> but but, but 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 there are some straight men, or actually no, sorry, lots of men who just like prefer like porn to start. Oh, it's like immediately fucking, you know. Like we're not even like getting like a story or a setup or anything. They just want to see the fucking. Whereas like for some people, yeah, it's 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 more about the narrative than it is about the visual. Sometimes, I think particularly too, just to to come back and think about where this scene is located in the context of the film. This is the first real moment that we have seen either two of these women in a remotely sexual or sexually interested fashion, right? So we automatically project heterosexual orientations onto characters until proven otherwise, because historically, that's what you would come to expect. So we don't know who these women fancy. We're pretty sure it's not the uncle, because he is a touch gross. <laughs> And we only see him for like a hot second at this point. Yeah. So really, this is our introduction to these women as sexual creatures. And I think it's worth lingering or oogling even just a touch and being a little bit lurid because it's giving us a, a greater sense of who these women are as sexual beings. I kind of compare it to like a romantic thriller from the 90s that like super steeped and steamy. Mm-hmm. And that it's meant to kind of have that kind that aspect of sexiness to it, that aspect of kind of going a little bit too far. Well, yeah. even the shot of her breast, like it's not like you know in All Cheerleaders Die, Joe, where it's like, oh, we just get that that insert oh, shot God. of breast. You yeah. know, the camera is at her face and it angles down because that's Suki's eyes looking down. Mm -hmm. The one thing that I actually find interesting, because again, I, I don't want to call these women lesbians because. It, they're queer because we don't know like what it's they're very 
as far as I can tell, like the, the movie handles sexual fluidity in a fascinating way. And it's more like, oh, they're, they're in love. Yes. But they're not really seeing women like they're seeing people. And mm. that's also something so progressive for something set in this time period, which is shocking to me. It doesn't hurt that all the men are assholes as well. Yes. <laughs> that is a great, nice touch. <laughs> so speaking of assholes, let's introduce the third member of this triad. The person I was like, we don't really see her asshole there. in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> so enter Count Fujiwara, who's played by Ha Jung-woo. So he is a well-cultured Japanese man. And he arrives to instruct Hideko. Basically, he... It's tricky. Is he being introduced as a Japanese gentleman here, or is he meant to be her art teacher or both? I think both, right? Okay. Like, he, he he's he, he's coming to be her art teacher, but he also happens to be a count. I mean, obviously, not really, but yeah. that, that that's the guise he's putting on. Okay. Yeah. So he can get in a room with her alone. Yeah. Okay. Because part of me was like, if he was a like a proper gentleman of high status would he be teaching someone how to do art so that was the part that kind of tricked me out but maybe that's the thing though yeah like jenny like what you said if he wasn't a count they probably wouldn't have like me and maybe i'm wrong but like let let him be alone i mean but that's also why she is the handmaiden right to like look after her in these instances yeah yeah and it's important of course that suki never really leaves them alone or she's not supposed to unless he tells her to unless he tells her to so Upon his arrival, so when we meet the Count, we almost immediately flash back and we get Suki's story. Before we flash back, though, I did want to comment on the editing of this film, which greatly enhances the comedy. There's two specific moments, but one is right before this flashback, and it's when they're putting on the corset. Uh, and yes. <laughs> she's like, oh, because basically, like, Hideko is putting the corset on Suki and tying it for, and she's like, oh, this is suffocating. And Hideko goes, you think this is suffocating? And it, like, cuts mm-hmm. mid-next scene almost, and she, like, has her foot on her back, tying this corset. Suki's screaming in pain. And it's so funny. so funny, but it wouldn't be nearly as funny if it hadn't cut to the middle of it. It's great comedic timing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's learn about Suki's backstory. She is actually the daughter of a famous thief, but she was raised by the top purveyor of stolen goods. So she was kind of raised in a <laughs> like a, a lecherous household where they were raising children, orphan children, and selling them, <laughs> and just doing all kinds of shady shit. Well, and you know why? It's because their taxes were so high. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the history lesson paid off, bitches. <laughs> <laughs> so what you need to know about Suki is that she has been planted in this house. So she and the Count are in this together so that he can court Hideko, elope with her back to Japan, marry her, inherit the money, and then declare her insane. And then he will abscond with it. And he will, you know, pay Suki to help him out with this, like a small finder's fee. And that's the basic plot of the film, by the way. Like, if you look up, like, the summary of this film, that's what it tells you. (laughs) (laughs) Which is good. I mean, this is probably about the 35 to 40 minute mark of the film. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, part one's just over an hour long. Okay, so let's get into it. The Count begins to woo Hideko, and we start to get some voiceover from Suki's perspective. So she, you know, she initially thought that Hideko didn't, 
you know, she thought she was naive. She thought that she hadn't really lived in the world. And that so it's clear that she thought she was going to be an easy mark. And at this point, she even describes her as being like a living doll that she gets to dress. But uh, we also see them bonding as they get closer together. So we actually get a different kind of dress and undressing scene here where they are undoing each other's corsets. And there's a lot of mirroring here. Like the two women look very similar when they are done up to the extent that Hideko actually says to Suki, oh, you could look like a, a noble woman if you are, you know, dressed in the right dresses and you have the right earrings and so on. And of course, that's foreshadowing what's going to happen, but it also suggests these two women do have a connection. Mm -hmm. So Suki also starts to resent the Count as a result. So she tries to undercut his seduction until he gives her the code phrase, which is uh, all to do with ripeness. And I was having flashbacks to Call Me By Your Name with this, where he grotesquely eats the peach. <laughs> I actually hadn't seen The Handmaiden again since Call Me By Your Name, and I was like, oh my god, this peach content. The, right? well, so much. There's the part, where, I think this is it, where he says almost ripe, and he bites into it, and it like... Yeah. It, it basically like gives him a facial, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're like, okay, we get it. <laughs> Once again, the the visual imagery message received. <laughs> I'm just imagining like the person responsible for picking out just the right peach, or if they had to like have a bunch of peaches on hand and just make him like take a bite out of all of them as they kept doing all these takes. Oh my god! Right, this was somebody's job on set. <laughs> Imagine the luck. <laughs> <laughs> So Suki is meant to orchestrate an encounter between the Count and Hideko where they can be alone together. So they have this moment in the woods, but before the Count and Hideko have that, she and Hideko have that, mm -hmm. and it's very cute, it's very romantic, and Suki is very annoyed that she has to leave. This is the dead mother bit, right? Yeah, so they bond over the fact that Suki has a dead mom, and then of course... Uh, Hideko more or less says the same thing. She talks about her dead aunt. Because Hideko's upset because like, her mom died giving birth to her. And so she, like, you know, feels bad that she basically like, killed her. I mean, and I actually think it's a fascinating, like, thing for, like, to study, too, is, like, it's almost like survivor's guilt. But, like, mm -hmm. you weren't even, like, really present for the death of your parent. Because Su Suki, like, tells her, like, oh, well, if I were your mother, I would have told you this. Because... It's what Suki's mother told her when she died? I believe it's not her mother. Her grandmother. But the woman, yeah, the, the grandmother. Yes, sorry. Okay. So, like, she didn't just make up what she told Hideko. Like, she's repeating exactly. But it, but that's the connection they have, you know? That they both, like, they both, like, felt better over the two, these two exact things that were told to them. It's a nice moment. And it, I think it reestablishes the fact that they have more in common than they would initially have thought. But it's mm -hmm. only because they actually took the time to get to know each other that they discovered it, which is called a romance. So uh, then we come to the night of the blackout. So following this blackout, um, basically Suki has has gotten upset with the fact that she catches the Count and Hideko kissing in the woods, even though she knew it was meant to happen. She still gets really frustrated. So she ignores Hideko when she is summoned following a blackout. And later on, she comes into the room... Uh, Hideko wants her to come to bed with her and she chastises Suki for not responding after the reading because it takes a lot to get out of the makeup and the hair and all that kind of stuff and then she tells Suki that the Count has proposed and she doesn't know what comes after marriage so she's playing very coy she's saying like what what is it that men see this want? is also your porn setup scene <laughs> oh 100% <laughs> oh it's really good it's very she she knows how to seduce it's, yes. I mean I, again, I, 
I, I'm not turned on by the female form, but, like, I was getting the vapors watching this setup. Like, it's it's so obvious what's happening. I'm sure to both of them, but it's just like, you know, you play the game. Like, when you're getting seduced and you want to go along with it, you're like, cool, I'm going to bite. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, you want a little kiss? Here, let me lick a lollipop so that we can have an extra sweet kiss. Mm. I've always considered doing that, and this movie reminded me that I had considered that. <laughs> now, wait, did you consider that because of the first time you saw this film, or had you considered that before you saw this film? Uh, the first time I saw this film. I haven't considered that before because I don't usually, like, eat candy. I don't really eat lollipops yeah. that often. But... I feel like we've talked about this before. We don't like sex and food together. <laughs> I know. No, it's too sticky. Well, because the thing that I kept thinking about, the shot that happens in this, so she licks the lollipop and she sucks on it for a bit to like get like have it coat her lips. Mm-hmm. And rather than just straight up kiss her first, she like moves her lips left and right over her lips. And I was like, that just sounds like it'd be sticky. <laughs> yes, Trace, that's the intention. I, I well, get it. Well, she's like coating it like lipstick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. So we get a little bit of makeup, we get a little tit action, uh, and then we we even move all the way to a vagina POV shot eventually. I we- love this shot. It is so bold. <laughs> I, I wrote point of vagina shot in my notes. <laughs> <laughs> the V stands for... In case you didn't get it. Um, It's so funny because I actually forget that we go back to this scene later. So when it ends, I was like, wait a minute. I thought they Mm -hmm. scissored. But (laughs) so this is the quote unquote tasteful version of this sex scene. And I think you could also interpret it. I mean, part of this is that this is the playfulness of the film coming in where we're not actually seeing everything that's happening. We need part two to fill in some of the gaps. But you could also make the argument that this is more how Suki remembers it. Like she's a younger girl she's maybe a bit more of a novice and as a result she remembers it as a little bit more of a tame affair I don't know. well i think they'll be, be because yeah i mean you've mentioned her voiceover in this but i think from the from the very first scene it, it's all suki's voiceover until part two when it's then hideko's yes. voiceover yes but also the count gets some voiceover in the second part Ooh, gotcha 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 mm-hmm. okay so so they have made out Maybe had a little bit of sexy sex. It's not as clear as it will become. But, well, because uh, it, it cuts away right before the cunnilingus actually starts. Right. <laughs> like, we get the POV shot, and then it's like, okay, next scene. Because like, we just get... I mean, it's kind of an extended shot of her looking at it, you know? Like, she's, mm-hmm. like, mesmerized by this vagina. Oh, yeah. She kind of sticks her tongue out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it's almost like um, like when dogs have their mouths closed, but you can see the tip of their tongue just hanging oh out because God. they're just like, boo. That's what stop. It I, stop. I don't know if I wanted to think of a dog. No. <laughs> Lesbians are going to be so mad at you. No, I was just talking about like the the, the, the look of the t- It's fine. I'm sorry. Stop. Conti- the, the next scene happens. So the next day after the Count makes too aggressive a move on Hideko, Suki and he have it out. And uh, he actually sexually assaults her by making her touch his dick. And then she makes a tiny... She makes she refers to it as a tiny joke of a cock, which I loved. I always appreciate, especially in period pieces, when they use the words cock and cunt, because that happens a lot in this movie. <laughs> At least translated as much. I don't act, right. I'm not familiar enough with the Korean language. I, I don't remember if she says it's in Japanese or Korean. I assume Korean. I think it's Korean, yeah. Yeah, their slang kind of translates to that way. I know yeah. Japanese wouldn't. 
Right. Oh, actually, did you two want to talk about who speaks what in this? Because I know we talked about the subtitles, but it is important about who speaks what language to each other. I didn't take notes on that. So if you know, I'm happy to talk about it. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so the uncle only speaks Japanese. And right. when uh, Hideko is talking to him, she speaks Japanese, but she speaks Korean exclusively to Suki. And then the same kind of with the count. So like, basically, if you're talking down, you're talking Korean. And if you're talking up, you're talking Japanese. Mm. But it's important because it like kind of reinforces that classes divide. I thought Hideko speaks ja- some Japanese at first, but then they start speaking exclusively in Korean by the end. Yeah, because she, she talks about how she doesn't like to speak Japanese. Right, the... because it reminds her of her moments with the uncle and reading the... Mm-hmm. Yes. And because she has to do all the readings in Japanese. And yeah. the, the letter that the Count gives Suki to give Hideko, that's in Korean though, right? I think so. But she's a the letter, so it doesn't yeah. matter. The letter is Japanese. Okay. Oh, is Got it? it? Okay. Yeah. She even holds it upside down, which you can't tell if you don't know Japanese. Right. Oh, really? Yeah. That's fun. Okay. So at this point, they are kind of actively sparring with each other, the Count and Suki, but they're, you know, they're still in it together. So following that scene where they are on the outs, we then cut to Suki giving Hideko a foot rub, and Hideko's kind of trying to gently guide her to be like, hey, I don't really like the Count that much. I'm in love with someone else. And Suki doesn't pick up on it at all. So Hideko gets mad and throws her out of the room. And then we're up to the time where the uncle is leaving. So he's going back to Japan for a finite amount of time, seven days. And he reminds Hideko that she's got some free reign, but that she should not forget the basement. And this is our first real mention of the basement. We don't know what it means. We've not encountered it. I love how he casually drops this. Like, what? This is an hour into the movie? Yeah, it is. <laughs> and they're like, wait, what? And this is like a whole layer that you haven't seen. And you know, because it's Park Chan-wook that he can bring in multiple storytelling aspects li- like late in the film mm-hmm. that feel really important. Yeah, like you better pay attention because this is going to pay off. But also, if you miss it, it's a single fucking line at this point. Yes, and it doesn't pay off until the last 15 minutes of the film, and even then, even then when it does pay off, we never really see the full extent of what happens in that basement. Like, we see a portion of it, but Mm -hmm. it's still never fully revealed to us. Well, the, the implications are very clear, but what we see of it is, like, not the full extent. Yeah. Yeah. So Uncle is gone, which means that it's time to put this plan in motion. So we see Hideko and Suki sneaking through the property. They go to the river. They get on a ferry. They're meeting with the Count. And they're off to Japan so that they can get married. Although Hideko seems to be increasingly preoccupied and even a little bit despondent. She's not really paying attention to things. She's not eating very much. Uh, And she even makes a desperate grab at Suki before the Count comes in to consummate the marriage. So it does seem like she regrets having gone through it. And she's very much in love with Suki at this point. 
So the Count leaves to cash in her fortune, and Suki fears that Hideko is actually going insane. And then a week later, the Count turns back up. He's got all the money in the bag. And then two men arrive, and they interview Suki about what she thinks should happen to Hideko. I love this. Because, I mean, obviously, on a rewatch, you're like, oh, they're interviewing her thinking she's the Countess. <laughs> mm-hmm. They're like, oh, this bitch is crazy. She's talking about herself like that other lady is her. It is pretty good. So they travel by car to the madhouse, and at this point, we get our first big, big, big shock where it is revealed that Suki is actually going to be the one who will be sent to the madhouse, and this has all been a ruse perpetrated by the Count and Hideko who are in it together. Mm-hmm. End part one. This is where I took my bathroom break. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it, I'm sure you didn't clock a Joe, but yeah, this is the 63 minute mark of uh, the theatrical cut of the film, and yeah, it's, I mean, it. It's essentially almost half the movie, right? Which is important. I mean, like, we needed all of this to really establish who these characters are, what the the plot machinations are, and then part two can go a lot faster because what you're, a lot of it is you're seeing it a second time, but it's in an edited format, right? Because it's just somebody else's perspective of things we've already seen. So I want to bring this up because because part two is mostly the first part again, but told from Hideko's point of view. Mm-hmm. That so the way we do this is you know we so yeah we just see a lot of it from her POV. Jenny, the one film that has you can say homaged or ripped off The Handmaiden in America's <laughs> side is The Perfection. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, we are on the record. If people went back and listened to that Eric Carmelo interview, we know that the director Richard Shepard literally showed this movie to the the pair of them, Nicole Snyder and Eric Carmelo, and the three of them were like, okay. We Got like it. this movie. How can we make something kind of like this? Well, and it's it's similar in terms of just its general concept of like, oh, like lesbians falling in love. There's kind of a revenge scheme at play. It is 90 minutes long, and it but it also utilizes the same thing where it's like, oh, we're going to see the same, like the first act again, but from another character's point of view. Um, I, I kind of liken the perfection to The Handmaiden as how I would liken Dress to Kill to Psycho. And that's why I say you can view it as an homage or you can view it as a ripoff. And that's obviously going to feed what your reception of the perfection is. Joe, like, listeners, you, you know how Joe and I feel about it. But Jenny, I know you have a dissenting opinion because you're not a big fan of the perfection. Uh, I wouldn't say it ripped it off, though. I, I feel like he was attempting an homage or definitely was heavily inspired by The Handmaiden. I try not to use the word rip off with many directors because I feel like a lot of directors go on with the intent of not like Mm -hmm. doing that. I do think that Park Chan-wook has more dynamic camera movements and like, so when you get that second act replay, it doesn't feel like you've already seen this movie for the past hour. And I feel like in the perfection, the second act really is tough for me at least. Interesting. Okay. Cause I feel like I've already seen this movie. I already know what's going on. I, I get it. I, and I think that's the big difference with me. Yeah. Personally. No, I mean, and you're, you're certainly not alone in that. I mean, like, we, we know people that, like, feel the exact same way. But I almost, because my husband hasn't watched um, Handmaiden yet, I almost want to double feature them just to, like, see how the perfection plays, like, immediately after watching this. Because I, hmm. I imagine it wouldn't be... Because you're right. I, I agree with you that the camera work and the cinematography are not nearly as strong in the perfection, yet I give both of them the same score because I, I love them both, but for very different reasons. Hmm. Very you reasons. Yeah. <laughs> I think one of the reasons that part two in this film, The Handmaiden, feels so 
energetic, even though we've already seen a lot of this. I mean, part of it is that we are starting by uh, it's quite an extended flashback in terms of right. we get to learn about Hideko's childhood and all that kind of stuff. But I think it's also because Hideko feels like a completely different character. Yeah. Like she yeah. feels super fresh, like, oh, okay, we know her, and yet she's acting completely different because it's from her point of view, which is not the same experience when we're watching The Perfection. Yeah, like you get to see her talking incredibly dirty to the Count. Mm-hmm. At that dinner table scene where yes. she's like, oh, you said that because you want to look at my breasts. Yeah. Yes. Mesmerizing. And, um, yeah. Men use the word mesmerizing when they want to touch a woman's breast. I do love it. I love it. So mm-hmm. good. <laughs> also love that dress. Oh, my oh. God. That dress. Oh, yes. Dress. Costumes in this movie on mm-hmm. point. <laughs> and I think that, that's the aunt's dress as well because we see it in the portrait that hangs on the stairwell. Oh, oh nice. I, yes, I, yes. I guess we didn't mention the importance of the cherry tree, but yeah, earlier in the film, Hideko oh, we're coming up to her, it. Well, yeah, but she she tells Suki earlier that her aunt's like they she hanged herself on the tree. Yeah, but we see it in part 2. Yes, yes, for sure. Okay, so part two opens with a flashback to Hideko's childhood when she arrives in Korea as a young girl. And very early on, we get the impression that this is not going to be a happy experience for her. So she is beaten by her uncle. She is terrorized by Madame Sasaski. Just did it again. That's fine. I'm going to go with it. I'm going to own it. I pronounce everything like it's French. And uh, But she is protected by her aunt. So her aunt is kind of like what we imagine to be... She's kind of like what we imagined Hideko to be like when we first met her in part one. She's a little quiet, she's reserved, but she's a noble woman. You know, she has a certain standing and class to her. And Hideko is taught to read by her aunt, but if she laughs or acts out at all, she is again abused by her husband. There's that really disturbing scene where he just clamps his hands over both of their mouths and noses. There's a lot of like torture or like very uncomfortable violence in this film or abuse in this film. This scene, for some reason, like this face clamping, because because it goes on for so long, too. Mm-hmm. It's, you think it's, it's going to be over in about 10 seconds, and then it just keeps going. <laughs> and, yeah, and he does it to both of them. Because like, they're laughing, because, like, yeah, she's teaching her the words, like, penis and vagina. And, like, and they start laughing, and, like, oh, they're like, oh, it's, like, funny. And then you just see his demeanor. He just gets up, puts those fucking gloves on, or maybe he already has them on, and just, yeah, just, like, moves their faces around, like, very forcefully. It's very, very upsetting to watch mm-hmm. yeah the... and it, go ahead Jane. i think what works is it's tough to watch domestic violence in films no matter which film it is but i think what makes it very specific to park chan wook is that he's not beating them senseless no so it's I, I i struggle to use the word watchable but it's watchable but it's also disturbing still yeah, because he's not going to hurt the money makers, but he is asserting his authority over them. Like he knows how far to take it so that they get the message, but that he's not going to damage them so that they couldn't perform a reading. Yeah. Uh, okay, so speaking of the readings, the true nature, like we've only really heard about them tangentially. So we heard Hideko talk about it in part one, but we don't really know what they are. And that's what part two does. I don't remember if this happens. It's because it's before the reading or something, but like it's when the ant tries to escape or is that after we see the reading happen? This, this is now. Yeah. So she, she's kind of slowly going increasingly mad at one point. She tries to make a break for it and that doesn't work for her. And she just, that to me is almost more disturbing is where the bars on the library close and she just walks back and she looks 
dead inside. Well, and again, the, the way, because, so she, she's, like, with the uncle at the table, and there, because there's, like, bleachers or whatever, like, there's, like, seating, you know, for when the people come to listen to her. Mm-hmm. And she scrambles over them and runs to the back, and then, of course, Sasaki shuts the gate on her. And it's filmed really cool, but yes, yeah, so what you're saying when she comes back, instead of step down over where she scrambled over before, she, like, walks around and goes down the stairs to extend mm-hmm. how awkward it is <laughs> yes and just how meek she must be in this man's presence right like yeah. this is what she has to become she's so docile and pliable and it's disgusting right mm-hmm. um okay so the readings are revealed to be live readings of erotica and it's almost like a real life kama sutra so we see two versions of it one is done by the aunt and she's just reading to this group of men who are you know more or less getting their jollies off of and we'll see another version of this later by hideko and she's actually made to do like aerial sex moves with a dummy and it's when something yeah when this wooden puppet thing gets lowered <laughs> it is a thing i i yeah i don't i don't know yeah i was speechless i mean like pin drop in my apartment watching this happen because <laughs> i remember this scene like i remember that there was more to it than just them sitting there but i couldn't remember if it was more like escorting because we do get this hint like there's a scene of hideko lying on a table and she's tied and her buttocks have been bared and she's you know been lashed a bunch of times we see that she does that to other men so there is a performative sex act in this that you know it's a, a bit of mild bdsm but then there's also this weird yeah aerial thing and you just it it scatters the imagination to make you wonder, so how far and where exactly does all of this go? So you read the lashing of the the bums as real and not in their head because it's the story that oh. she's reading out loud? Mm. See, I thought it was real, though, because we get it with um with the count right because it's the count who's in that scene right well she does it to a couple of men but we do see the count i guess the reason i thought that it was real is because there is this refrain of 10 minutes like what i could do with you in 10 minutes yeah and i wasn't sure if that meant that the uncle was pimping her out for 10 minute increments if the men wanted to but there is definitely a scene where like she focuses on each of the men and you kind of get the suggestion that they're imagining the story with her as a sex partner i kind of thought that yeah with, with the 10 minute thing i i imagine that more isn't i didn't think that he was actually pimping her out for 10 minutes i thought it was just like more like enticing them with fantasy because what these mm. readings are is an auction like yes she's reading from the book so they will buy them for their own masturbatory stuff in their own homes yes but of course yeah as we mentioned earlier they're forgeries <laughs> which is incredible work on that guy like hate him but that is genius oh it's so genius i to the point where and i know it's not the point because it's more about the women but i almost would have loved it if his comeuppance was like a bunch of his buyers finding out Mm. and coming back to kill him how would they know not that the movie needs to be longer but you know the count i don't know tells everyone or something i don't know but that's, there's no organic way to do that. Well, I get what you're saying because I think it would be more satisfying, but I like how dumb his eventual comeuppance is. Like, yes. he's so, he's such a grody old man that he can't 
even fathom the idea that he is actually being killed because he wants to hear about his niece's pussy for lack of a better term no i mean i think that might be what he says actually um yeah it's lots of stuff in this movie (laughs) lots of uh very deviant sexual behavior right and speaking of other unpleasant things this is the time where we need to bid adieu to the ant so she eventually makes her way to the cherry tree and she dies by suicide from hanging and it's this heartbreaking shot where you see little Hideko watching her and asking why they won't cut the tree down. And they, she realizes, oh, it's because the cherry tree is worth too much, which is like a scathing indictment about the the value of a human life in this film. A value of a woman's life. Right. Yes. Thank you, Jenny. <laughs> You're saying she killed herself for now, right? Because we haven't revealed that he killed her. Does he? Yeah, because they have the whole conversation when the when the when Hideko's like, oh, well, they say if you hang yourself, you know, you shit yourself and your tongue's hanging out. And she wasn't like that, which means she was dead beforehand. Yeah, oh. she got murdered in the basement. Yeah. Oh, okay. No, I do not have that on my notes. So we should address it now. Okay. <laughs> I remember the scene you're talking about, but yeah, I didn't for some reason. I mean, I, mean, the, I watched the, it the, at like one a.m. That that's no, but that's the thing though. I mean, it it, it is a simple plot. Kind of, but like there's so much going on. And I mean, like even the mention earlier of the basement, like you said, it was one line. There's one lines everywhere. And if you and if you miss that scene where she mentions the the shitting yourself, yeah, like that's it. Yeah, see, I my big takeaway from that was just another version of oh, she's not allowed to speak to him in a certain way, she's not allowed to ask questions, but yes, of course, gotcha. the implication being that the ant has been murdered. And of course, the reason that the ant has been murdered is so that he can fucking marry Hideko because he wants that fortune. Well, it's because she's already going insane and because she's tried to escape. Like, right. there's nothing left for the ant to do. Yeah, she's no longer ripe fruit. She's damaged fruit. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay, so Hideko, of course, inherits all the reading, which is great. Uh, at this point, she gets <laughs> aged up to her, her current age, so we're just meant to assume she's been doing this for years. And, oh, God, what a happy movie this is. Sometimes it's happy. The first half of part two is the is the probably the most disturbing part of the film. Yeah, very bleak, very bleak. But uh, thankfully, things are looking up. So this is where the count enters the picture. So we get the the reveal that Hideko actually knew the count before all of this transpired, because of course she heard him having a conversation with her uncle. This is where we find out that uh, Madame Sasaki has, is actually the first wife, and also the count thinks that Hideko is sexually dead as a result of her training. So he's like, "Oh, I could sleep with any woman I want, except for that bitch because she's cold and." Free. Bridget. You're just like, oh my god, this guy in your tiny penis. <laughs> Sorry, tiny joke of a penis. Tiny joke of a cock. <laughs> uh, everyone try to use that in a sentence sometime this week. Okay? <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I, I, I don't want to harp on it, but yeah, when he does that to her, it's like, oh, feel how bad that I want this money. And it's because, yeah, it's, he's, you were supposed to believe he's erect because he, he the, the thought of being rich and like, committing this woman like gets him so hard. <laughs> Well, that's the best part. He's not even a sexual character so much no. as he gets hard about being rich. Yeah. <laughs> the men, the men in this movie. Well, uh. he wants to feel like he owns a part of Japanese culture because yeah. to him, that is What's way more height? interesting. And it's the height, yeah, the height of like what he wants to be, even though he's Korean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's- These men are social status 
climbers, or they aspire to be. And of course, that's what ends up being their downfall. <laughs> Meanwhile, the ladies are like, uh, I just want some good sex and maybe a little bit of romance. Make it steamy. Make it steamy. <laughs> a In a bath. It, it's about <laughs> to get steamy. <laughs> uh, yeah, so the, the Count proposes a late night meeting. This is where he confesses he's got this false past. He's done all this to seduce and marry her, blah, blah, blah. Uh, this is once again, this is the other reference that we get to the basement. So we get a quick flashback scene to her being introduced to the basement, but we don't see anything. So the mystery deepens. And this is when she's asking about the tongue and the shitting with the hanging. Right. Okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So the um, so Hideko basically reveals that she has plans to also die by suicide because she doesn't think that she has any kind of life worth living, and they end up coming up with this grand handmaiden scheme. So we're back to part one. Uh, we get a quick little throwaway scene where the Count fucks her first handmaid, Junko, who we get to see a little bit, and... Is the implication just that he fucks her and then has to send her away or that he got her pregnant and sent her away? Oh, I don't know. I, I thought it was, yeah, like he fucked her. And so then that that gave Hideko a, a reason to be like, um, no, bitch, go away. OK, that probably but, seems but more likely. It could I mean, it could be. It's the 30s. You never know. <laughs> I mean, I've always wondered about contraception before our contemporary version of contraception. Yeah. <laughs> when were I, I, I would have said that she got pregnant. You wouldn't say that? I, I would say that she got pregnant, oh, and that's why okay. she was sent away. Like, I can't imagine, like, the reason she was sent away is because she wasn't a virgin anymore. But yeah, I, I think there'd have to be a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, either way, she's out of the picture. She's out of the picture. So at this point, this is where we rejoin part ones, but we get to see everything from Hideko's perspective. So she's watching her undress. She's kind of laughing. Like, she's she's having a laugh at a bunch of different moments where she gets to... I don't know, like, Hodega really comes alive in this part because we sh- we see that there's so much more to her. Well, you watch her falling in love, which is such a, it's a nice, beautiful thing, because you don't get that in the first part. You don't know yeah. that she's fallen in love with her. Well, and, the, and that that's why the bathtub scene, because for me, that's the turning point for her, even, even though before, it's the shoe, you know, because she, she yeah. it's, watching her yell at those servants is one of the most delightful things for me in this movie. <laughs> if you chase her away. <laughs> but, but, but again, so that, that's like upon first meeting her. Oh, and also, yeah, you get the, the bit with their meet cue when she, when, you know, uh, when Suki bumps her head on the, on the bed and everything, mm-hmm. she's just standing in bed waiting and just starts screaming, knowing that she's going to come running in that room after her. It's so funny. <laughs> yeah. It, it really gives you a sense of how much people can orchestrate things like meet cutes in addition to the fact like they unexpectedly fall in love. But so much of the their interactions are actually manufactured and unfortunately played up by the Count who has been feeding them both information about how to manipulate the other one. Yeah. So we quickly get a sense that Hideko and the Count's relationship is transactional in nature, and it's all in service of fooling Suki, but of course, as Jenny, you said, she's actually falling in love with her, and this brings us back to the night of the blackout. So we see that Hideko is clearly thinking about Suki as she's doing her reading, and it helps her to come alive, and she gets this applause from the men in the audience. And then we're back to the sexy sex scene, now with 100% more face juices, 69ing, and scissoring. I definitely wrote face juices. Um, 
so before we get into the content of the sex scene, I did want to mention, because I did find um, what the status of the set was when they were filming this scene. Okay. So basically, for, for the, the, the lovemaking scenes, which would include this and, of course, the, the final scene, all crew members were asked to leave the set, and only female staff holding the boom microphone was present. Uh, cool. The scenes were filmed with a remote-controlled camera. All male oh, wow. crew members had a... Huh? That's, like, really impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, visitors, for, like, set visitors were not allowed on the set that day. Um, male crew members had the day off. So, like, they weren't even doing other stuff. Like, the whole day was devoted... Or the days were devoted to this scene. The bathroom set in Hideko's room was made into a resting area for the two actresses to relax between takes. The bed scenes were shot during the early stages of production, as Park thought it was stressful and burdensome for everyone. Yeah. During pre-production, everything that had been choreographed and discussed between Park and the two actresses who were uh, who were fully dressed, like during the so during like the rehearsals, like they were obviously dressed when they were doing it. They weren't just like naked rehearsing for this. And Tayri Kim, who's Suki, uh, apparently she was insecure with performing the simulated sex. But Min Hee Kim, who plays Hideko, reassured and energized her. Yeah, because the actress who plays Suki, I think this was like her first role. She was selected mm-hmm. from something like 1,500 or 15,000 actresses. So. 1,500. And he apparently like knew she was Suki um, within like 15 minutes of auditioning. I always think those stories are hilarious. Like, I know exactly what I want, and then I see it, and yes... There you are. You're the character. I love that. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's so good. I also love how you you mentioned how the because I I did know a little bit about the filming of this scene and how he really mm-hmm. wanted to make the two actresses feel the most comfortable possible, which I feel like in any sex scene you should try to do. Yes. And it really makes me. I hate to bring it up again. I just don't like how this movie filmed its sex scene was blue is the warmest color, mm-hmm. where you have those actresses saying how uncomfortable it was on set and how if they felt like harassed sexually was that a woman too or was that a man director that's a man it was a male director okay i i haven't seen it either i'm clearly behind on my lesbian cinema oh that movie was one of the more uncomfortable movies to watch in a theater where it was me and a bunch of men i think with that movie it's because it's um it's like two and a half oh i was gonna say it's like two and a half hours but so was this (laughs) yeah i think it's it it's basically like there's blue is the warmest color for women, and then there's Stranger by the Lake for men. For men, yeah. And it's basically just like it's a lot of graphic sexuality, and it can be an uncomfortable viewing experience, but more so if you know the nature of what's happening behind the scenes. Like, I don't know anything about Stranger by the Lake, but it's like there's something about watching a film that has a really graphic sex scene particularly as north americans right because we're not attuned to this level of sexuality without knowing anything either about the the production of stranger by the lake but given what i know about generally gay men i'm gonna say that they were probably fine with it <laughs> <You're saying>. whoa <laughs> bold trace I know, I know that's a, that's probably a really because i mean again, i i don't know I, and that's kind of a joke but i mean obviously it's a serious issue with like you know real sex on camera but i mean you know men want a bone <laughs> right so coming back to this film do we have anything that we want to talk about with regard to the sex scene i will say the first time i watched it i did find it it very sexy, but also I did watch it in a theater where a majority of the audience was men. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was hard to watch sandwiched between two guys that I did not know. Oh, yeah. And one, and it, it was a Fantastic Fest audience, which I love Fantastic Fest, but you, if you've been, which both of you have, yeah. 
some of those men are tough. Yep. And and I was sa- sandwiched between two of those kinds of men in this movie. And I don't know why I was alone. But I guess it's because I got in the theater where Park Chan-wook was going to be in, and I didn't want to switch out. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, listeners. In case you don't know, the way the way the way Fantastic Fest seating works is it's like a lottery almost, and you get assigned a theater, and like you can switch out. But if you do, it means you get to go into the theater last. Like if you want to get into a different theater because there's multiple screens, and so yeah, like if you get in a theater and you're Group A, well, but you're not with your friends. You can switch out and go to your friend's theater, but then you're going to be in the very last group that goes in. So it's, you know, you got to pick yeah. your battles. That's and then sometimes the theater has the director in it. And for this one particularly, I did know because right. he was doing a pre-Q&A that if you were in another theater, there's no way you could have asked a question. Yeah, right. So I stayed. <laughs> <laughs> can we discuss the method of physicality in this scene, though? And I, You mean how fucking buff these two women are? I was meaning how they're having sex <laughs> with the scissoring. I, I, I admit, I've actually I, I have not, I haven't watched a lot of lesbian porn. Um, the 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 most extensive explanation of lesbian sex that I've seen is actually in Kevin Smith's Chasing Amy. Um, oh god! Maybe dear. I should have done. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's actually a real no. You need to watch Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I do. I, do, I actually I do. feel like this scene that the their sex scene reminds me of the sex scene. Before this one, before the really, really graphic one. Uh, oh, wait, I'm sorry. Have either one of y'all seen Chasing Amy? I actually haven't. A long time ago. Okay, they, they, they don't actually have, like, you don't see sex in that movie, but there's a sequence where Ben Affleck is telling the Joey Lauren Adams like character, the lesbian, like, well, how do you have sex? Like, you're not getting penetrated. And she's like, well, you don't have to be, like, to penetrate to have sex. And he's like, yes, you do. And it's one of those typical straight male things, you know, putting down women. She does a thing about fisting, but I, I believe there's a conver- but there's a part where it's like, oh, scissoring isn't a thing, you know, like women, lesbians, like we don't do that. <laughs> so watching this movie and like even like my, I, I was talking to my husband about it, and he was like, yeah, it's really weird they do scissoring because like that's not something that lesbians really do. But watching it, I didn't really get the scissoring as like an actual like like a physical act of pleasure, but like it was just the combination of like genital to genital contact that was like getting them off on a more emotional level. I agree. I actually, it's, it's not really a thing, but it visually shows them emotionally connecting Mm -hmm. to where I think an audience that is not used to seeing lesbian sex on screen would, they, they, they can understand it a little bit more. Right. Mm -hmm. And also if they are so new as, Apparently Sookie is. I think that they would have tried that. Yeah, it's like experimenting. I actually thought that the touch of them holding hands while they were doing it. I love the holding hands aspect. I think that's the part that really sells it. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. But listeners, if you do disagree and like, I mean, also for our lesbian listeners, speak up. I mean, if you're comfortable, obviously it's it's sex. (laughs) Yeah, feel free to create an anonymous email account and send it to us at horrorqueers at gmail.com. We've had some people message us privately because they were afraid or um, they they didn't want to do something publicly because they might not be out or something. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so they have some really good sex and yay for female pleasure. (laughs) Yay! (laughs) So at this point, Hidego is clearly like, no, we got to call off this plan. I don't want to do it anymore. The Count pushes her forward. Um... She attempts to die by suicide by hanging from the cherry tree in the manner that her aunt did, but she is actually saved by Suki. This and- scene is so good. I love it. So, fun fact, this is one of Park Chan-wook's favorite scenes uh, in the film. Really? really? 
Yeah. So it's great. Trace, it, it, I think it is really good. Well, and also with editing, when she fucking drops her. <laughs> And the camera like cuts back to a long shot and you just see her choking as she's as as, sorry, you see Hideko choking as Suki is like just like bastard. (laughs) Oh, wait, sorry. I'm here. I'm here. I'm propping your legs up so you don't die. (laughs) And it's interesting because he's still like when she's about to commit suicide, the viewer is still kind of on edge, even though, you know, she survives. Well, the movie does a good job of forgetting. I I put in my notes. I was like, oh, right. We have to go back to the asylum. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah because i forgot yeah because you're wrapped up in their affair yeah you're wrapped up in all of this emotion and they just had this like incredible night together that you're like wait mm-hmm. I agree. It, like you, you forget about like the whole part where they have to go to japan and suki has to be in an asylum eventually yeah right. and and really that's what ends up happening like we we see that they make their own plan Suki writes to her grandma to tell her that she's teaming up with Hideko. They do a quick little detour so that they can destroy the library. <laughs> I mean, I guess if you think about the fact that it's mostly forgeries, it's not that big of a deal, but it's like, they destroy a lot of that library. Yeah, like he comes in and sees that shit, he's gonna be pissed! Yes. Uh, <laughs> which explains why he sends men after them. <laughs> And after that, they make their way to the river. But like this time, the framing is such that it's all very romantic. Like they're stealing glances at each other. They're stealing kisses. So everything that we saw in part one is really recontextualized. And it's not a somber, mad affair anymore. It's actually like I completely missed it the first time around. But as Suki is being taken away into the madhouse, I remembered hearing something in part one, but on part two, you actually get to see that it's Hideko laughing because she can't keep it in how how good the performance is that <laughs> Suki's giving as she's being dragged away. There's a part earlier, too, whenever the Count is, like, waxing poetic to Hideko, and you just see Suki behind him, like, fanning, vomiting. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. <laughs> and then you see Hideko, like, kind of glance at it. This was in part one, too. Yeah, it's way Where early. you don't know. But at, then it kind of recontextualizes it. And you're like, oh, she knew. Mm-hmm. It's so, it's it's just, del- and that's, again, I told Andrew, I was like, because he didn't watch it with me. And I was like, Andrew, please watch this soon because I want to watch it again. Like, I want to watch someone watch this movie and, like, discover, like, and watch it unfold in their eyes. Mm -hmm. I've done that. I actually hosted a quote-unquote romantic tea, and I showed this movie as, like, my centerpiece romantic movie. (laughs) Everybody's like, what the fuck? (laughs) Jenny, what's wrong with you? And you're like, just wait for it. It happens about 100 minutes in. Uh, yeah, so at this point, we are back up to speed, and Suki is in the madhouse, Hideko and the Count have run away, and then we enter into part three. Which is 15 minutes long, at least for us. Right. I think all of my parts were about five to ten minutes longer, on Mm. average. But this, I will confess, is probably my least favorite part of the film, maybe just because there aren't, there's no more tricks. Uh, so it's really just, okay, let's deal with the count so we can get these ladies back together which though i well and see then i'm wondering then if you if the theatrical cut might be more effective because it's shorter i think probably yeah yeah so uh so we do a little bit of cross cutting back and forth between the count and hideko there he wants to get married a second time with her taking suki's name because of course she's operating under the assumption that she is now the handmaid and uh meanwhile we're also seeing suki escape from the institution courtesy of her old family i love the scene where (laughs) 
they like come in with the with the suits and they wrap her up so that she's protected from the flames and the smoke (laughs) um there is a trope in this though that i don't like it's the lock pick trope where if you have a sharp object you can just pick yourself out of any shackles i really think that's too easy of a thing like it's a narrative out that i'm not a fan of but it's a minor quibble in this film i agree actually about that i it's so hard to do that and i I I guess they're supposed to be (laughs) they are supposed to be professionals yeah i mean like she's a professional thief and pickpocket i get it but whatever isn't it also the same brooch so maybe that is like specifically designed to like get you out of shackles yeah maybe i mean that's a, me maybe doing a bit of a stretch but no you're probably right i mean they seem like they in, they're very inventive so it's there's yeah i could see that they, you ain't got much to do in korea in the 1930s so you just practice picking locks well particularly <laughs> if you're a lady or <laughs> yeah uh so this is probably my favorite comedy gag which is that hadego preps a poisoned glass of wine <laughs> using the vial of liquid cyanide that he gave her earlier and she can't get him to drink the wine because he's too busy oogling her. Um, saying he's going to thrust deep into her navel. Ugh. God, this guy's First such off, an idiot. First off, we've heard it's not that. Yeah, like, I was like, that ain't <laughs> happening, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> no, but no, she snowballs the wine. It's insane. Yeah, it's great. And she does. she has to do it three to four times, which is just amazing. So he passes out, but she believes that he's dead. She grabs the money. She makes off to meet up with Suki. And we see the next day that the Count is awoken by two of Uncle's men, and he is taken back to the house. Meanwhile, we also see Hideko pretending to be him. So she is now assuming his identity. So everybody is Love switching it. up. Uh, I actually thought that she had cut her hair because she looks shockingly like a man in these scenes she of course is doing like butch lesbian cosplay where she's like donning men's apparel it's also important to note that from this point on the women don't wear dresses they only wear pants i did like the oh wait i'm sorry why is that important well, I think just because they're they're really eschewing the conventional notions of femininity mm-hmm. and the like culture that has been imposed on them. So they're dressing in whatever mode is comfortable to them. And in this case, it just happens to be like pants and different like, like not restrictive corsets and bodices, which is what we saw in the first two parts. Gotcha. I did like the intercutting of these scenes with the torture sequences. I thought that was a really really good way to make sure you don't get too bored with their escape plan because I think, honestly, the the only suspense is when the the passport guy is, like, looking at the passport. Mm -hmm. But other than that, it's like, okay, like, we kind of know where this is going, so I'm glad that we're getting some torture sprinkled in here to, like, keep us invested. Yeah, the danger is that it could turn at any moment, but that is not the story that we are watching. So really, it's what happens to the Count that is providing the more genre elements to wrap up the film. And boy, are there. There is an octopus (laughs) that does not get used. And I'm very upset about that. I'm so upset. Uh, me too. <laughs> yeah, particularly when it's a fixture of his fucking movies. Don't introduce an octopus and then not eat it or have it grab someone's tit. Well, like, I, I was imagining, like, he would just put the octopus, like, on his face. <laughs> so gross. And just have it, like, smother him to death. So this is our reveal of what happens in the basement. So it is not only where the forgeries are made, but it is also where... The uncle performs all of his various surgeries, so he chops off a bunch of fingers, but we also see that he has severed penises and vaginas in formaldehyde jars lining the walls. 
Classy guy. Full disclosure, I missed the severed vagina, and now I want to know what that looks like. But I did catch that penis, and whew, 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 whew. Yeah, there's there's a lot of them. <laughs> he has done this to a lot of people. Yeah, and this it it doesn't tell you like the movie doesn't even say like like we don't get a backstory for the uncle, but it's also because he doesn't deserve one. I agree. Yeah, everything we need to know about him, we know. Mm-hmm. So as he is torturing him, Uncle asks all kinds of disgusting questions about the Count's wedding night with Hideko, and we see in a quick flashback that, of course, she didn't even let him touch her. She actually just manually stimulated herself and then cut her hand to make it seem as though she had lost her virginity. I love that when we're talking about, like, movies that aren't cinema, um, we'll say masturbate or jacking off or whatever, but, like, in a movie like this which is art, Mm -hmm. it's manually stimulated. (laughs) Yes. This is some classy shit, y'all. I did earlier say this movie wants to fuck you. (laughs) It does. I mean, (laughs) did they have the word masturbate in the 1930s and stuff in Korea? I would think so, right? That's not like a new term, is it? It's a bit more, it's probably a bit more clinical. I don't, I imagine people would have just been like, touch yourself or something like that. Right. Yeah, like, like, a, like a different euphemism. I mean, masturbate isn't a pretty word. Um, no, I did have a question nothing as to like... About masturbate. <laughs> I'm going to go masturbate in the living room. Um, <laughs> she cuts her hand to like get the blood on the sheet. No one noticed her bloody hand. I know. Or her, her cut ev- hand or her bandaged hand. It always bothers me when people cut their hand because if you've ever gotten a cut on your palm, A, that shit takes fucking ever to heal and it's like really a painful spot because you have a lot of nerve endings yeah it was like you have like the most nerves in your hands just like no you wouldn't cut yourself there it's such a movie trope watching those kids in it like just cut their palms i'm like these kids come on <sighs> kids with their palm cutting <laughs> So the movie is more or less done as Uncle prepares for the penectomy, which is the official term of removing a penis. Is there a colloquial term that we would use for a not classy cinema movie? Uh, hack peen. Depenisment. <laughs> <laughs> Cutting that dick off. Yes, exactly. So as he prepares to cut that dick off, the Count smokes his cyanide cigarettes in this windowless room, which eventually kills them both. So our final scene is the ladies setting off on a steamer to start their new life together, and of course we have to include those four little balls from that erotic story told earlier. Minling and balls. And one final sex scene. And we, yeah, we, we, we see it, and the sound of those balls like plays over their sex scene and then yeah we just get like the shot of the fairy on the ocean with mm-hmm. the balls still jingling <laughs> yeah because the love making continues even after the credits have already begun never stops yeah i mean i admit like when it ends i'm like okay that's cool but there's still two lesbians in ni- in the 1930s so like i shudder to think what their future looks like but, I mean, if they're going to Shanghai, China, yeah. so, it's not looking great. <laughs> but but I guess it's better over. than, like, basement porn readings. I mean, yes. <laughs> well, they're going to have to, per- like, pretend they're not together their entire lives. But Yeah. Or one of them will have to pretend to be a man. Oh, so I guess Hideko has the, dra- the, 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 the reverse drag down, so. Yeah. She does. Yeah. Yeah. She can pose as a drag queen in the future. Sorry, drag king. <laughs> drag king. Go. Although, well, no, I think Drag King though has a has an has a bit of an extravagant like extravagance to it in which she wouldn't want to have. She would want to be more blindy. Yeah, yeah. this is anyway. just passing. 
I mean, they don't know what that is. It's fine. No. I love this movie. I think it's fantastic. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's it's a feast for the eyes. It it does keep you on your toes, like not just with the narrative, but also with those like with the different colored subtitles. There's so many layers to it. That, I mean, I don't even think we unpacked everything that we could unpack in this film. Oh, absolutely not. Well, it's something really interesting that I kind of spearheaded off of rewatching Thirst, Joe, actually, that I watched The Little Drummer Girl, which is his series. And that means I've seen everything that he's done outside a handful of shorts at this point. Mm -hmm. And Park Chan-wook has this obsession with storytelling and how and who is telling the story and what the characters know versus what the audience knows. Like you see it with Old Boy and a lot of the Vengeance trilogy where you get those like sharp twists. Mm -hmm. Thirst as well. Mm -hmm where you have, like, someone kind of overseeing what each character does. There's always kind of a director. Yes. Yeah. And there could be multiple directors. Stoker's the same way. But and, and he didn't write Stoker, though, which is fascinating. So, like, he still gets that, that his hand in there, even, like, quote-unquote, just as a director. Yeah. So he, and the little drama girl's the same way where he didn't write it, but it's all about, like, spy and espionage and, like, mm. who is the one actually, like, at the hand of telling what story and the handmaiden i think perfectly just brings all of these interests that he has in deconstructing storytelling and deconstructing like the storyteller and yeah. it's i think it's like what his perfect movie yeah is is it your favorite of everything you've seen of his yeah interesting um it's actually one of my favorite movies of all time <laughs> okay okay joe I, I still would recommend I, you really should i mean i know it's like Again, you're doing the move, but like you really should watch Lady Vengeance. You watch that, I'll watch Thirst, and we'll be even. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. Yeah, because honestly, rewatching Thirst and then now The Handmaiden within a couple months of each other, they're very, very different movies, and yet they feel like they could be speaking to each other. It's he's just a really fascinating director, and it's it's the kind of movies where when you see how they come together and all of the artistic choices that are being made across all of the different you know production units, they come together in such a fascinating way that it kind of reinforces, maybe just to me, the, the beauty and the possibility that film can have. Like, this could be a simple story, or it could be a lurid story, or it could be just like a shitty heist con movie. And instead, it's something rich and romantic and sexy and scary and dangerous. Like, it, he's cutting across so many different modes of storytelling. You're right, Jenny. It's just so fucking impressive. A lot of times like when, when America remakes something from Asian cinema, you know, it's like, well, a lot of Asian cinema is so steeped in the culture that it doesn't really translate as well to America. But he did that with this movie. He took something that's steeped in British culture and mm-hmm. translated it somehow to Korean culture. And it's like, okay, so it's possible Americans can do it. <laughs> yeah. It's called you have to take care. <laughs> We're just not trying. I mean, also, I, I mean, I think it also may be a, a fact, though, is that maybe our history isn't quite as interesting as Korean history, you know? But I mean, because I mean, like, look at look at the old boy remake, which I actually don't hate Spike Lee's old boy. I think it's I'm sorry. I don't I don't dislike it. I think I think it's a solid movie and as probably as good of a remake as you can get for what you're working with. Um but yeah, any kind of like Korean culture that it like that that is housed in Old Boy, you don't get that in the American remake, right? And I think that you can do that in a remake. I think the 
best example of that is Ringu versus the Ring. Oh yeah, right. yeah. Where there's like a total like I, I did a huge project on it in my Japanese class where because the Ring is so American, it actually doesn't scare a lot of Japanese people, and vice versa. Um, Ringu isn't scary to a lot of American people. I, I actually no, I, I mean, and I like Ringu fine. Granted, I did see the Ring first, and so I, that may be. Yeah, I think that would hurt my, it. My opinion, yeah, exactly. But what's funny about the ring to me, though, is that the scariest, the scariest imagery in that movie is CGI. But it's really effective. Whereas what in Ringu, it's it's just you know open mouths. Like there's no like real effect in that movie. And mm-hmm. you'd think that 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 at least for Americans that would be scarier. But no, it's the CGI blue face of Amber Tamblyn that haunts people's dreams at night. <laughs> And most specifically, you. That Amber Tamlin thing is like, I remember like whenever in the end, whenever Naomi Watts like turns the chair around for the the Blando white guy's corpse, I like couldn't I like, close my eyes because I was like, I can't look at that like a face like that again because it's so haunting. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, it's just Martin Henderson. Never mind, I'm good. Who? He's a person. <laughs> <laughs> you know his name? <laughs> oh sure. <laughs> the top of your head. He was in the Britney Toxic video. Um, that I do. I think that is really interesting what you say because I love that he took something that and I think a lot of like there's Snowpiercer. It's French. Mm-hmm. It comes from a French graphic novel, but like it just I feel like is more interesting that he adapted something that even on top of the fact that it was British is also about an experience that he's never had, but he still makes it feel so authentic. Well, and injects so much of his own culture into it, you know? So he removes the British culture and injects his own. And the problem with the American remix is that we just remove the yeah. Asian culture and then that's it. Yeah. Which and that, that's renders it, it with no nationality at all. Yeah, exactly. And that's the problem with so many of them. Um, so he, the, that he's able to do that with this property is, I mean, I think it's quite admirable. Yeah, I was reading that, like, he took this, like, this book and this text and decided, like, he, one of the major questions he asked was, like, what it means to be Korean in a world that is trying to take that from you. And I feel like you could also very much apply that to being a lesbian or being gay yeah. mm-hmm. or being queer. And I, I I think it's an interesting level then and layer to the film that it is a movie about two women falling in love, but it also is a movie about what it means to be Korean in a world where there are Japanese sympathizers who believe Japan would rule forever and hope to erase all Korean identity. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's yeah, we have the cultural assimilation happening in this film, but it's on the background. Like the characters know that that's happening, but and that's why, like you know, we don't like I said we don't get that title card saying this is what's happening in Korea and this is what they're going through. But when you know that, when you have that extra layer, then yeah, it adds national identity to sexual identity to gender identity. It all plays a part in this. This is why you need to do your history homework. <laughs> I'm just defending my diatribe earlier, but it's fine. <laughs> okay, well, I mean, do we have anything left to say about The Handmaiden? It's a beautiful film. People should watch it. If you haven't watched it in a while, go back and watch it again. I agree. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've actually, I don't rewatch movies very often. I, when I got the screener for this after seeing it at Fantastic Fest, I watched it like three times. Mm-hmm. And I've been, I guess I've seen it like four or five times. I, I think I had it on in the background one of those times earlier when I was like rewatching it a ton. And it easily became one of my favorites. And I, yeah, it, I think it's a really perfect movie and you'll never hear me say that for a, a lot of movies. <laughs> <laughs> 
I agree. I agree. <laughs> um, I, I was. I have been watching more movies, like rewatching more movies in this quarantine than I would normally. Because yeah, I'm not big on rewatching unless it's something that is near and dear to my heart. I re I rewatch horror movies. Those yeah. are actually strictly the only thing I usually rewatch. And Handmaiden, even though we, it we are in a horror queer like podcast. Yeah, no, it, it, I, it's not really horror right. to me. No, no, no. It, but it has horror elements. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that yeah, you're you're absolutely right, and we're totally bending our very loose rules here. But yes, absolutely. I like it because I think this movie. I think it does use a lot of horror elements. And what's actually really interesting about Park Chan Wook is that he believes his only horror movie is Thirst. Really? I mean, yeah. Huh. Uh, I would so think that Stoker is also a horror film. And well, he. He doesn't watch horror movies because they scare him. <laughs> but you, I could see him viewing Stoker as like a family dramedy. Yes. Yeah, but he puts all these elements into it that makes him feel like old boy. It's constantly you hear people argue, is it horror? Is it a thriller? The director would say it's a thriller. Um, Which but, I would argue, I mean, though, he, falls under the umbrella of horror. Yeah. But he uses violence in this way that feels so original and striking, but also horrific. And I think in The Handmaiden, he uses sex in the way he uses violence in, like, the Vengeance trilogy. Yeah, mm. I agree. Mm. Oh, no, I, I really want to go back and watch Lady Vengeance now. I've <laughs> I was going to say, time times. for a deep dive into his oeuvre. Well, there's a Blu-ray set of the Vengeance trilogy, but I don't know if it's... Uh... I don't think it's Region 1. Oh, okay. Wait, that's not us, is it? No, you. we are Region 1. I think it might be a Region 3. I could be wrong. Got it. I could be wrong. Okay, well, um, that will conclude The Handmaiden. Uh, but before we announce what we're covering next week, Jenny, do you want to... Are you doing anything? Do you want to plug something? <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, um, when this airs, in a couple of weeks, the Austin Asian American Film Festival will have a virtual shorts film festival. Yay. Uh, it will be beginning on june 11th at the very least until the 14th at the very most one week long so yeah that's that's what i'm working on right now to make sure that happens we'll, we'll make sure to um to share that shit on our socials as well once once you start posting that thank you and where can people get a hold of you jenny uh you can get a hold of me on twitter at jenny lee x33 and i'm it's the same across the board and letterboxd instagram and even my email and lee is L-E-I-G-H. Yes, the feminine way of spelling it, I believe. There you go. Okay, well, if you'd like to contact us, you can visit our Horror Queers Facebook page or join our exclusive Horror Queers Facebook group. You can tweet us at Horror Queers, and that is also our Instagram handle, so it's, again, all the same across the board. Email us at horrorqueers at gmail.com. If you have two seconds, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating or a review. Just don't call us clout chasers. Um, <laughs> oh, God. You can buy Horror Queers merch like t-shirts, stickers, mugs, pillows, and other stuff at tpublic.com. That is T-E-E-public.com. And if you want even more content, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. Um, we are not going to announce what our June schedule is yet because at the moment we don't know what it is. But for May, we do have full-length episodes on Insidious and the taking of Deborah Logan, as well as an audio commentary on the unrated cut of the Evil Dead re- make so uh go uh hand over some dollars to patreon and you can listen to all that and hours upon hours of previous content this is true i'm actually surprised at how well we made it work considering neither you or i like possession films right and they all tied together really well too i mean granted as of as of now as of this recording we haven't done insidious yet but i'm i'm not worried about that one okay because i love insidious insidious (laughs) i so on we did a best of the decade at minisode for the patreon and i named insidious the best horror film of the decade of the 2010s, but 
I'm mostly going on how influential it was for everything that came after. A Man After My Own Heart. I love that movie. It's, it's so, so underrated. <laughs> it is. It is. And I'm really excited to defend it. So we are going to be doing that um, soon. Um, but by the time this episode drops, it will already be out. So y'all can go check it out. <laughs> Joe. Yes. What are we covering next week? Because I actually forgot. <laughs> so we are bidding the month of May adieu, which means we are going into June, which is unofficial Pride Month, Trace. And sadly, I don't think anyone is going to be in a position to celebrate with parades or anything fun like that. But you know what? We're still going to celebrate anyway. So we're going to do a double bill, my friend. We're going to be checking out Hellbent, which is the first gay slasher film, as well as Killer Unicorn, which is a drag queen slasher film. But recent. It came out last year or maybe 2018. I think it was last year, though. One of the two. It's quite recent, so it's going to be interesting to look at the old guard versus the new guard. Yeah, much like our Scooby-Doo episode where we looked at a 1998 Scooby film compared to a 2019 Scooby film, we're going to trace the genesis of the gay slasher, which is going to be mm-hmm. super fun. Indeed. So, um, yeah, on that note, uh, well, actually, sorry. Thank you, Jenny, for joining us <laughs> once again. We are always happy to have you. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Jenny. And on that note, we can cross out The Handmaiden. Yes, and cross out Horror Queers. Disgusting Podcast Network, home of creepy or disturbing and terrifying creepypastas, SCP archives, weekly full cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and the Boo Crew. Horror-centric interviews. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.